Habakkuk chapter 2. So we'll read the chapter and then we'll have our Bible study here. Habakkuk 2 verse 1 says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the one who is proud, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Will not all these take up their taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his, for how long, and makes himself rich with loans? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them." Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the people will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all of its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to, deliver, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples, so you are sinning against yourself." Surely the stone will cry out from the wall, and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed, and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire, and nations weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them, because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all of its inhabitants. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, tonight. Lord, knowing and recognizing that, Lord, you are in your holy temple even now, and that, Lord, we must be silent before you. Lord, you are not like the uh, speechless, dumb, mute idols of the nations, Lord, who have no breath in them, uh, who cannot uh, speak to their worshipers, who cannot act and who can do nothing at all. But you are the true and living God, and you are the one who has spoken to us, Lord, in your word, and you have revealed yourself to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that we would be humble before you, Lord, that we would draw near to listen, 
Lord, to gain hearts and minds filled with your wisdom. Lord, seeing that you must instruct us and you must teach us. So, Lord, we come to you tonight, Lord, seeking and asking for you to impart upon us, Lord, wisdom and truth and understanding. Lord, that we might discern more and more of what your will is. And, Lord, that our lives might conform more and more to your glory. Lord, we pray that you might fill this earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. And, Lord, that you might use us, Lord, to spread your fame and your glory, Lord, in our families, Lord, and throughout this world. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we started Habakkuk last week where uh, the prophet is, uh, at the beginning, seeking to understand uh, really what God is doing in God's ways in the world. Uh, He is complaining or bringing forth uh, these issues that he sees concerning the evil that is rampant in the land and why it is that it seems that, that God is not doing anything about it. Uh, and this is bothering him, and so he's bringing these things to God. <clears throat> the Lord answered him and told him that he is going to do something about it, that he was full aware of what was taking place in Judah during the time, and that God uh, knew about these things, and that he already was acting and moving in order to bring about uh, his judgment upon his people, and he was going to do so by raising up the Chaldeans, this wicked and hasty nation that would come in, and they would be uh, the source of God's judgment against his own people, Judah. Well, when Habakkuk hears uh, that this is God's intention, uh, it causes him to even have even more questions about God's ways in the world, and specifically how it is that God, who is his eyes are too pure to even look at evil, he cannot approve of evil, and yet here he's using this wicked nation, a nation that is even more wicked and depraved than Judah, and using them to judge this other one, and none of these things are making sense to him. And so he's trying to understand what God is doing in God's ways in the world, how God's justice and his righteousness, how these things go together in his providence over men. And it seems to him uh, that the world is spinning out of control and out of chaos. However, he knows that this is not the case, that God is indeed in control and that God is the ruler over all things, but he still can't understand it. And that's why he's going to the Lord seeking for wisdom and seeking for understanding. And this is what the Lord gives to him in chapter 2, right? In chapter 2, he's going to provide this for him. And then chapter 3 will be Habakkuk's response to what the Lord reveals to him. So we'll pick up then in chapter 2, verse 1. And here we see the humility of Habakkuk. He says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Here, again, as we said, none of these things are making sense to him, right? It seems like a contradiction, as if God is being unjust, that God is being unfaithful, and this is all coming from his own perception. Yet he knows that the fault lies not with God, but it lies with his own limitations, He recognizes that he is a weak, frail man, that his mind is weak, that he knows in part that he doesn't fully understand all of the ways of God in the world. And this is why he's waiting for God to answer him. He's not running, looking for other sources of wisdom, going to other people and asking for them to give him advice or counsel on how to understand what is taking place. He's going to God and he's submitting himself to him and whatever God answers to him in the way that God reproves him. He knows that 
whatever fault there is, is coming from his own limitations, not from God. He knows that God is just and that God is righteous. And just because he can't make sense of everything doesn't mean that there's some fault or error that lies with God. He recognizes that the fault or error lies with who? It lies with himself, right? And this is the proper way that we ought to be. There are going to be times in our Christian life where it doesn't make sense, where things don't make sense or we can't understand exactly what is going on. And the problem that most people have is because they're so arrogant and because we're so proud and we think that we know everything, then we assume that our perceptions are right and then therefore there must be something wrong with God. Or many times this happens uh, between each other. Right, that we're always right in our perceptions and the way that we're viewing things. And if there is any conflict or if there's any uh, issue, it must lie with other people. But this is not the approach of Habakkuk. He knows that he's not right. He doesn't know where, but he's waiting for God to speak to him, to reprove him, to correct him, and to give him the understanding that he needs so that he can live by faith and put all of these pieces together. And this is why it is good when God disciplines us, when God reproves us. In Job chapter 5, there the prophet Job speaks in this way, that there is a blessing on the one that God reproves. Job 5, verses 17 and 18. says, Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he inflicts pain and gives grief. He wounds and his hands also heal. There is a blessing, a happiness that comes upon the man who is reproved by God. And this is what Habakkuk is waiting for. He knows that God wounds, but also that God heals. And so he's waiting for God to speak to him and to give him understanding so that he can respond accordingly the proper way to what has been revealed to him. And this is exactly what the Lord does in verses 2 and 3. It says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Here, the Lord answered me. God's word came to him, and it is God's word that satisfies him, that answers all of his questions, that gives him peace of mind and security, and allows him to be at rest with everything, with all the turmoil that is going on in the world around him. Though in terms of the situation, nothing has changed. Everything is still out of whack and out of chaos. The, Jude, uh, the people of Judah are still living wicked lives, and there's still this prospect that the Babylonians are going to come and completely decimate them and wipe all of them out. And yet, in the midst of all of this, it is the Word of God that will be a refuge to him, that will give him stability. God's Word is like a rock or an anchor for our soul, right, that gives us stability so that when all of the world is in chaos, in raging around us, we are not shaken and our faith has something sturdy upon which it can rest and reside. The Lord gives him his word. And the word of God is a living and active word. The word of God, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, is profitable, right? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. This is what he needs. He needs the word of God to reprove him, to correct him, so that he can put all of these things together, and then he will be prepared for every good work. 
how to live faithfully before the Lord, even in the midst of the present sin of Judah and the coming destruction of Judah by the hands of the Babylonians and the deportation that will follow that. He's going to have and be equipped by the word of God with everything that he needs in order to face these days of adversity. And this is the purpose of the book. It's given to the remnant in order to prepare the faithful for the coming storm so that they are able to process it and live faithfully before the Lord, even in the midst of very difficult times. Here, he assures to him, the Lord does to Habakkuk, that this is a very sure word. It will not fail, right? It is coming and it will not delay. It certainly will come to pass. And we remember that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. God's word will not fail. It will always be fulfilled. He says, even if it seems delayed, it will eventually prove to be true. So what he's going to tell him is not going to happen immediately. It's going to take a very long amount of time for these things to come to pass. Many of the things that he's going to reveal will be events that take place even after the life of Habakkuk, that Habakkuk himself will not live to see some of the events that are going to be foretold here in his own prophecy. And so even though these things seem to be delayed, he's telling him, you just have to wait for it. Wait for it, and it will surely come to pass in the, uh, the confidence that he has that it will come to pass is the word of God. God has given it in his word, and even if it seems delayed or slow, if it tarries, you just have to wait for it. It will certainly come to pass, and it will not delay. Every word of God proves true. Proverbs 35 and 6. Every word of God proves true. It will all be fulfilled, and even though many times those promises there may be a period of time, sometimes a very long amount of time. With some, it's thousands of years of time that go by waiting for the promises to be revealed. The in initial promise given in Genesis 3.15 to Adam and Eve in the garden took 4,000 years for it to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That's a very long amount of time. It seemed like it was delayed. It seemed like it tarried. But was it eventually fulfilled by the Lord? It absolutely was. And everything he's promised to us concerning the future, it seems delayed, yet we can know for certain that it will come to pass. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. It says in 2 Peter chapter 3, he will certainly fulfill these things. Verse 4 and 5, he says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Here, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, really is going to be exposited throughout the rest of the book. The remainder of chapter 2 is going to uh, give uh, a commentary on the proud one. What the proud one is like, the one whose soul or whose heart is not right within him, then chapter 3 is the righteous man who lives by his faith. Right? It's going to show how it is that the righteous respond to these events and to this revealing of the word of God. Here, the proud ones are a reference to the Babylonians in the immediate context, but certainly this would be true of all those who are wicked and unbelieving, all those who reject the Lord. 
The Babylonians are proud ones. They are those who rely upon themselves. These are self-reliant people. They are proud. They are arrogant. They do not rely on the Lord, but they rely only on their own strength. And just because they have some temporary success, and they will have a very great empire. The Babylonian empire was a very powerful, very wealthy, influential, a massive, expansive empire in the ancient Near East. They controlled vast amounts of territories. They conquered many kingdoms. They amassed great wealth for themselves. They were extremely powerful and influential during this time. When you see that happening, there is the appearance that God is favoring them, that God is for them, that God is on their side. And yet here, the prophet is assured that though God uses the Chaldeans, right, though they are his instrument and his tool in order to bring his judgments on the earth, this does not mean that God approves of these people, that God is pleased with them, but rather they are proud, they are arrogant, and their heart is not right within them. And their day is coming as well. And one day God will do to them what they've done to everyone else. Yes, he's used them to bring judgment upon the nations, but one day he will use another nation to bring judgment upon the Babylonians. So there is this assurance here that just because they are winning the day and just because they have some temporary success, some wealth, some power, they have many comforts and luxuries of life, this does not mean that God is pleased with them. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. It says in James chapter 4, verse 6. And here, specifically, He mentions His soul is not right within Him. The problem with the Babylonians is more than just their actions. It's more than just their words and the deeds and things that are taking place out here. The fundamental problem is their heart. It is the soul that is within them. It is not rightly oriented toward God but rather it is corrupt, it is perverse, it is filled with sin and wickedness, right? Filled with pride. They do not have a contrite, a humble, a lowly heart. This is the one that God looks to, him who is contrite and lowly in spirit and who trembles at my word. That is the one that God is pleased with, regardless of whether or not he's a wealthy man or a rich man, regardless of whether or not he's a master or a slave. None of those things matter. All that God looks to is the heart of man. And when he sees the humble, contrite, lowly heart, that person has the favor of God. But when there is the proud heart, a heart that is not right within a man, then it doesn't matter what his circumstances are. God is not pleased with that man. And God's wrath is against him and God is opposed to him. And even if he has some temporary blessings... All of those eventually are going to give way to eternal ruin and eternal destruction. So here, he's telling Habakkuk, do not judge the Babylonians by their outward successes, but rather you have to see them the way that I see them. Man looks on the outside, but where does God look? God looks on the heart, and their heart, he says, is not right within them. So you cannot judge them according to these temporary successes. And just because the Babylonians are used by God to destroy Judah does not mean that God regards them with greater favor than Judah or that God regards them as more righteous than they. They're both wicked, right? He uses one wicked nation to destroy another wicked nation. 
in contrast to the proud one, is the righteous. And here he says, the righteous will live by his faith. This phrase uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, is a very important phrase that is quoted many times uh, in the New Testament. Essentially, the book of Romans is a commentary on this one phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. This is what he's describing in the entirety of the book of Romans, and this is his proof text for everything that he's going to spell out in terms of the doctrinal aspects of Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11. The righteous lives by his faith. He does not live by works. He lives by faith. This is the way that we attain the righteousness of, of God. Let's see a few of these passages. First, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, 16 and 17, which is, again, amazing when we consider the importance of the book of Romans in terms of laying out uh, this very clear, concise teaching concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. In, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, where he gives the introduction to what he's going to talk about throughout the remainder of the book, this is the verse that he quotes in order to prove this, to prove this. So this one verse, this one phrase from a minor prophet, right, from the book of Habakkuk is crucial and essential to the Apostle Paul's understanding of justification by faith alone. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And then he goes on and begins to lay out all that this means and all that this entails from chapter 1 through chapter 11. Also, Galatians chapter 3. Also, the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Here, the verse that makes it evident that no one is justified by the law is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous man shall live by his faith. Also, again, the Apostle Paul is teaching on this same issue of justification by faith alone, apart from works, apart from works of the law. And he goes to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, to prove this point, to say that this is evident, this is clearly taught in the Old Testament, the righteous should live by faith. Then Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 Another very important book of the Bible, <clears throat> in terms of our understanding, many who would say as well, written by the Apostle Paul. Romans 10.36, or Hebrews 10.36 says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So there again, the righteous shall live by faith. Here, the righteous become righteous by faith. This is the way that a sinful man is made righteous in the sight of God. Not by his own works, not by his own obedience, not by his merits, not by his efforts, but by faith in an outside source of righteousness. And that outside source is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the only way that sinful man can be made righteous in the sight of God, and we receive his righteousness through the means or through the instrument of faith, right? Faith is the means by which God uh, bestows upon us, grants to us the very righteousness of Christ. So we receive that righteousness as our own through faith, and then we live by that faith. The faith that was there when we believed in Christ is the same faith that we maintain, that we keep with us throughout the remainder of our life. So that the entirety of the Christian life can be summed up in this one word. We live by what? We live by faith. By faith in who? It's always faith in Christ, right? We're always living by faith in Christ. The righteous live by that faith. It is this belief, this trust, that our, that our acceptance before God is not based upon our own works. It is not based upon anything that comes from us. Our acceptance before God is always based upon who? Only and only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is only through His death and His resurrection, through His righteousness, that we can be acceptable in the sight of God. And this righteousness is given to us through the gift of faith, not by any work or any act or any merit, any performance that we have done before God. So the standing that we have before God is never based upon our works. It's never based upon our performance, not at the beginning of that salvation, nor at any time in that salvation. Our standing before God is always based upon Christ, not our works, not our merits, not our performance, not our circumstances. Does God's approval of me change when I have favorable circumstances or unfavorable circumstances? It always remains the same because the basis of my acceptance before God is not my circumstance and it's not my work and it's not my effort. It's always the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the guarantor, as we saw in Hebrews 7, of a better covenant or the surety of a better covenant that God is relating to me, entering into a covenant with Christ. Not with me directly, but with my head, my representative, and that representative is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And He is steady. He is fixed. He does not alter or change. So God's acceptance of me doesn't alter or change because it's not based upon me. It's based upon someone else. It's based upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is always and only the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And we must live by faith in that reality. Always trusting that <clears throat> we are accepted before God based upon the work of Jesus Christ. This is what we must believe. And this is what we must live in each and every day. There is this inclination within us that comes from the flesh 
that wants our approval before God to be based upon our own works and our own efforts. The flesh loves justification by works. The flesh desires to do something by which we earn God's approval and God's acceptance. But we must fight against that and we must live every day on this reality that I am always accepted in the sight of God based only on the person and work of Jesus Christ and what He has done for me. This is the way that we must live by, that this is the basis of our acceptance before God. However, when we experience times and seasons in our life that are unfavorable, difficult circumstances, trials and tribulations, what is the temptation that we always have? We think that God has rejected us. We think that God has abandoned us. We think that God has turned away from us. We think that God doesn't love us anymore. As if the love of God for us is based upon our circumstance. But the love of God is based upon who? It's always based upon Jesus Christ. And does that ever change? That never changes. So even if I have unfavorable circumstances, does that mean God loves me any less this day than He did the day before when I had favorable circumstances? No, because it's always based upon Christ. And the righteous have to live by this faith, always trusting that we are received by God into His favor on the basis of Jesus Christ, not on the basis of anything else. Not our works, not our performance, and not our circumstances. But this is what God has just told Habakkuk. They're about to go through circumstances that are unthinkable to the Jewish mind. What they're about to endure at the hands of the Babylonians are going to rattle them to the very core of their faith. Because how can they be God's people? And how can the promises of God be fulfilled among them if Judah is completely destroyed? If Jerusalem is burned to the ground? The temple is going to be destroyed and burned to the ground and the people are going to be taken out of the land and deported into a foreign land. So it seems as if all of these things that are necessary for the fulfillment of the promise of God and that original promise given to Abraham, Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, which is that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And who is that seed according to Galatians chapter 3? The seed is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the hope of the faithful in the Old Testament. It is in the promise that God gave to Abraham to give to them to bring about the blessing of salvation through the promised seed or through the promised Messiah. And Israel was important for that because this is the nation by which he was going to come. The northern kingdom, they're already kaput, okay? They're gone. Now, the same circumstances, the same thing that happened to the northern kingdom is about to happen to the southern kingdom. And they're going to be tempted to think that the promises of God have failed, that God is not going to fulfill His word, that God does not receive and accept them anymore because now they're living in a foreign land. They're under the hands of the, and the burdens of these wicked people. But what does the righteous man have to do during that time? He has to live by faith. He has to trust that his acceptance before God is not based upon these circumstances, but it is based upon what God will do in their perspective for them through Jesus Christ. And for us, it is what God has done for us 
through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have to live by that faith. And this is what the Lord is telling Habakkuk. During the midst of this very hard ordeal, the righteous must live by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Isn't this what Abraham had to do? God made promises to Abraham that were delayed in their fulfillment. And there were many obstacles that rose up that seemed to make these promises impossible to be revealed. The first was that they were barren and they were really old. You know, he was 100 and she was 90. And typically, 100-year-old men and 90-year-old women, they don't have children, especially when she's been barren her whole life. And yet, this obstacle, was it insurmountable to the faith of Abraham? No. He trusted, he kept believing that God would fulfill his promise, and in due time, the Lord granted to them the son. And then later in Genesis 22, when God tells him to take your only son up and offer him as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering on the mountain there, now a dead son, does that seem to be an obstacle to the fulfillment of the promise, to bring a nation into the world through him? Well, it seems like this would make it impossible, but did it cause Abraham's faith to waver? No. He believed, if necessary, according to Hebrews 11, that God would raise him from the dead in order to fulfill that promise. He lived by that faith. He did not walk by what he saw. He walked by faith. He believed the Word of God. And this is the way that we must live as well. We must live by faith, always trusting in the finished work of Christ on our behalf that grants to us our acceptance and our favor before God, that we are accepted in the sight of God each and every day only because of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. And therefore, our standing before God, can it ever change? It's impossible that it would change because the only way it could change is if God the Father changed, and that can't happen, or if God the Son changed, and that can't happen because they're the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, the righteous must live by faith. Now, verses 5 to 20 are going to describe the Babylonians, who they are and what they're like, and what's going to happen to them eventually, right? Yes, they're going to have their day for a little bit. God's going to use them, but then eventually God's going to repay them for what they have done. Verse 5, furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. And he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Here, the haughty man, the arrogant man, wine betrays him. When he gets drunk with wine, it betrays him and it causes his arrogance to increase even more, right? To be even greater, to be even more obstinate in these things. This is what happened in Daniel chapter 5 with Belshazzar. When they were there, uh, having their revelries and their feasts and they were drinking and they became drunk, they became greater in their blasphemies against God. Well, this is what the Babylonians are like. They drink, they get drunk, they are haughty, they are arrogant, and they think only in terms of conquering more and more. They're like Sheol, they're like death. They're never satisfied with what they want. They never want to stay at home. It's always about the new conquest, right? The new adventure, going out and taking something else. They're never satisfied, right? How much is enough? How big of an empire do you need? How much wealth do you need? How much gold and silver and money do you need? And for most people, what is the answer to that? 
just a little bit more, right? Just a little bit more and a little bit because they're always wanting something greater and greater and greater. And this is because of their pride. They're proud, haughty men. They're not content to live a, to live, live, live a simple, quiet life in all godliness and dignity, but they're always wanting more and more. Then verses 6 to 8. Will not all these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his, for how long, and makes himself rich with loans? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you. Because the human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. Here, they are the ones who have looted, but eventually they're going to be looted by others. So the looter, the one who has stolen, is going to have all of his goods stolen away from them. Right? What they have is not their own. They've stolen it. They're thieves. They've taken it from other nations. And God views this as their uh, they've taken out loans from other nations. They have borrowed all of their goods and taken it for themselves. And then they're living in luxury on credit, right? On these loans, but they can't pay it back. Eventually, their creditors are going to come calling and they're going to want their goods back. And when they do, they're going to take it all away from them. It's like a man who goes and who lives a lavish lifestyle but all of it he does off of loans. He borrows money after money after money for new cars, for a new house, for boats, for all these lavish vacations. But he doesn't have the funds to pay for any of these things. Well, eventually the bank is going to come and what are they going to do to his house? They're going to take it. What are they going to do to his cars? They're going to take it. What are they going to do to the boat? They're going to take it. Well, this is the way God views the Babylonians. Everything they have is on loan from these other nations. But these other nations are the creditors, and eventually they're going to come calling for their loans. They're going to come due, and they're not going to be able to pay for it, and so they're going to plunder them. They're going to take everything away from them, and the peoples are going to loot you because you have come about it in unjust ways. Whatever a man reaps, this is what, or whatever he sows, he will reap. As you have done, so it shall be done to you. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in terms of the justice of God. You have stole from others, you've looted them, then they're going to come and they're going to loot you in return and pay you back for all the evil that you have done. And this comes from the Lord. Verse 9 to 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You devise a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many people, so you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall, and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Here, the one who is secure will be insecure. They've used their unrighteous wealth. They've gained all of this fortune, this money, in order to build their nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. As they have amassed this massive fortune, They've used it to build fortresses, to build walls, to build palaces, all of these defense mechanisms that they think make them impenetrable, something that makes it to where they have security. No other nation will ever be able to come and conquer us 
because we set on high, we've built our nests there, and no one is able to overcome all of our might. But they're leaving, they're leaving out the most important factor. Because if their battle was with other nations only, right. then perhaps they could have some security. But who is their battle ultimately against? It is against the Lord. The Lord is the one who is against them. And is there any amount of fortifications that a man can build that will protect him from God if God wants to destroy him? Absolutely not. Because God can use a nation and send that nation and they'll, He'll give them the power to do so. If He wants to drop a meteorite from heaven and make it land right on top of your city and kill everyone, He can do that as well. He can send fire and brimstone. He can send a tornado through, a hurricane, whatever he wants to do. He has all the tools in his bag that he needs to destroy any nation. So they have amassed this wealth and they think that it gives them security, but they're not considering that the one who is contending against them is the Lord of hosts. And this is a common folly that we see even in this world today. Because do not the wealthy think that their riches give them security? It gives them a sense of invincibility, that everything is going to be good and fine and great. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Wasn't this the problem with the rich fool who had such a great harvest that his barns wouldn't even hold all of the grain? So he tore them down and he built bigger barns. And then he took his ease and said, eat, drink, and we're going to be merry. We have everything laid up for many, many years to come. He thought he was safe. He thought he was secure. He was going to sit back and relax and live a peaceful, quiet life for the rest of his life. But what did he not consider? That that very night, his soul was required of him. And then who will all this belong to? Right? This is not going to help you. Wealth does not help in the day of trouble. On the day of judgment, our riches will not deliver us. Where is our security to be found? Only in Jesus Christ. That is the only refuge by which a man can be made secure from the coming wrath of God. And yet, people will look to the things of this world. They look to uh, their, their health. They look to their wealth. They look to all these other things to provide some sense of security. But none of those things will help us on the day of judgment. It will not help us in the day of death. 12 to 14. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here, the Babylonians who have honored themselves are ultimately going to be destroyed. They have built a city with bloodshed. They founded a town with violence, right? The city, the town. The city is a collection of people coming together using their diverse skills and gifts to build this collective city, this unit for, and typically, who do they build it for? Their own glory and their own honor. This is why these cities rise up in this way. And they're called, their nations are called after their cities, the, the empire of Babylon is after the city of Babylon because this was their great, their most prominent of cities. If we go back to Genesis chapter 11, Genesis 11, this was the case 
at the Tower of Babel. The city that they built there was for their own name. They're building up their own name. And this is true throughout human history. These great empires, these great cities, the people that are building them are doing so for their own glory and for their own honor. This is why they want monuments built to themselves, statues built to themselves in order to memorialize them for many, many generations because it's all about their own glory and honor. Genesis 11.1. 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Let us build for ourselves a name. This is what Babylon is doing. This is what the city of man does. There is, actually there's a book written a long time ago by Augustine called The City of Man, The City of God and the City of Man, comparing and contrasting these two competing kingdoms. There is the city of God, which is the kingdom of God, and there is the city of man, which are the kingdoms of this world. And these two are in competition. This is what the Babylonians don't recognize. They're building this city for their own glory and for their own honor. But what is God doing on the earth? Well, he says so in verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. This is what God is doing. He is spreading his glory. He is spreading his knowledge over the face of the earth. And eventually the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Now in this present life, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is confined to the body of Christ, to the church. This is where it is known. This is where it is recognized. And to the world, they can't see it. It is unseen to them. They can't understand it. It seems very weak. It seems very feeble. It seems very frail to them. But ultimately, what will eventually happen with the kingdom of God? It will take over the entire earth, right? When Christ returns and when he establishes his perfect kingdom, there will be no more kingdoms of this earth. All the kingdoms of this world will be completely ruined. They will be utterly decimated and it will only be the kingdom of Christ that is left standing. Well, the Babylonians, they want the earth to be filled with their knowledge with their glory, with their honor. But that's what God is doing for himself. So who are they fighting against? They're fighting against the Lord. And will God share his glory with another? He will not, never share his glory with any other. And according to Psalm 2, it is God's purpose to give to Jesus Christ this eternal kingdom. And this is why the nations are raging and the peoples are plotting in vain. They don't want Christ to rule the world. They want themselves to rule the world. They want it to be about themselves. They want to make a name for themselves. But God is about giving to Jesus Christ a name that is above every name, that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that what every petty king in this world wants? Didn't Nebuchadnezzar want that? To ever, for every knee to bow before him and every tongue confess that Nebuchadnezzar is Lord? He built a statue, a monument to himself. He 
made a decree that anyone who did not worship that statue would be subjected to death if they did not do so. This is how vain these men are. But who is the only one that God is going to give that name to? He's not giving it to Nebuchadnezzar. He's not giving it to the Pharaoh. It's not going to be Alexander the Great. It's not going to be Julius Caesar. It won't be any other petty king or empire in the history of the world. There's only one man who will occupy that position, and that is the man Christ Jesus. He will give to him a name that is greater than every other name, and only to Christ will every knee bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and that will be known across the entire earth. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So, something's got to give here. Either God's got to go or Babylon's got to go. God's not going to go, right? So who's going to go? They are, right? That's what he's telling them. You're, you're going against the Lord. You're trying to oppose the very purpose for which God created the world, which is to fill it with the knowledge of the glory of Christ. You're not going to win this battle. You are ultimately going to be ruined. Wouldn't this be a great comfort to the faithful during this time? When they're seeing this empire at such, at the height of their strength and power, and it seems like they're invincible to be reminded of these things. And this is a great comfort to us as well. Because when we look around in the world today, you've got all sorts of these petty dictators, these megalomaniacs that are running around America, like that Mark Zuckerberg, you know, we're actually using Facebook right now. So yes, these kinds of people, right? They want to dominate. They want to rule the world. They think they are the masters of the universe. But what will every one of them do one day? They're all going to die, and they're all going to bow their knee to King Jesus Christ. And that is our hope and comfort. God will deliver us from all of these people. We just have to wait for it, right? If it seems delayed, He says, wait for it. It will surely come to pass. God has told a decree, and He will not change His mind. He will not change His mind. Okay, verses 15 to 17. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them, because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all of its inhabitants. Here the Babylonians used the peoples of the nations, when they enslaved them, they used them for their own sport and for their own entertainment in order to mock them and to laugh and to, uh, to get their jollies at the expense of these other people by making them drunk so that they can look upon their nakedness and mock them and ridicule them and expose them to shame in this way. And this is what they would do with those that they would take from other nations. They would bring them back and subject them to all sorts of miserable, horrible things, shameful things that they would force them to do. Well, this is what they've done to others. So now God's going to do it to them. God's going to make them drink. He's going to make them drink the cup in the right hand of the Lord the cup of foaming wine that is the wrath of the Lord, and then God's going to expose their nakedness. He's going to put them to open shame. He's going to give to them as they have done to others. And this is for the violence that they have done 
throughout the whole world, right? Not only to men, which they have done, but also to creation itself. They are not proper stewards of the world that God has granted to man. It is true that God gave man dominion over the earth. But when God granted man dominion over the earth, did that mean that men could exploit the earth in however way they wanted to and use it in this very exploitative, very careless way? And the answer is no. But what did they do when they went into all these other nations? Lebanon was overwhelmed by you. Uh, the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them. Lebanon was an area with these vast forests. And they would go into these areas and just chop everything down. They would completely spoil the land and take every resource that they had in order to bring it back to Babylon so they could build more buildings for themselves to the expense of that land and that territory. And then the beast, they would kill all of these wild animals, all of these wild beasts. And we remember from Jonah chapter 4, that God has regard for the cattle as well, right? Not only for the people of Nineveh, but also for the animals that live there as well. But they have no regard for anything. They have no regard for God. They have no regard for their fellow man. And they have no regard for God's creation. They just use whatever they want to their own advantage. They exploit whomever and whatever they want because all they care about is satiating their own evil and wicked desires. And so God is going to turn the tables on them, and they're going to be exploited in the ways that they have exploited others. Okay, then verses 18 to 20. Here is the ultimate problem. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside of it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Here, their fundamental problem is their idolatry. They are idol worshipers. They fail to give glory and honor to the true and living God, and they worship and serve creatures rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Here, they're idols. What profit are they? How are they of any benefit to them? How are the idols going to deliver them on the day of trouble when God comes and gives him their, his recompense? How can their image teach them anything? And don't they realize how stupid this is? The maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions a speechless idol. Right Of the two, when you're looking at the maker and the creation, the creator and the creation, which one is greater? Which one has more prominence? Which one is more deserving of praise, the creator or the creation? Well, anyone looking at this objectively would say that if you create something, then you are greater than the thing that you created. Isn't that right? We recognize that about God. God is greater than us because He is the creator and we are His creatures. But idol worshipers, what are they doing? They are creating something and then they're worshiping their own creation as if this thing that they have created is greater than them, is an object worthy of their love, their devotion, their worship, as if it can deliver them, as if it can teach them and instruct them and tell them what they need to do. Is this not utter foolishness, right? This is why the Bible speaks with such sarcasm against idol worship. 
that the person is trusting in a block of wood. He's trusting in a stone. In Isaiah, he talks about the man going down and cutting the tree. He brings half of it home and he makes an idol out of it and he prays to the idol. And then the other half he takes and he makes a fire and he makes his bread over it. The same piece of wood that he's using to cook his bread, he's also worshiping and praying and asking it to deliver him from all of his evils. This is what people do. And why is it that the gods of the Babylonians approve of war? They approve of violence. They approve of oppression. They approve of immorality and every wicked thing imaginable. Well, who is the creator of these idols? The Babylonians are. And what do the Babylonians want? War, oppression, violence, bloodshed, immorality. So because the idol is speechless and because the idol cannot talk, then who has to talk for it? The person does. And the idol always gives to them exactly what they want. See, that's the way it works. <laughs> the whole system is rigged, right? This is a, this is a, a scam, right? You're, just, he, you're speaking for it and he's going to always say exactly what you want it to say. It will always approve of whatever vices that the person desires. And this is why men love idols instead of worshiping the true and the living God. It is the product of the sinful imagination of men. And that idol will always permit men to commit whatever sins that they want. Whatever sins are pleasing to that group of people, their idols, they'll always have a God that approves of that, that sin and gives way for those kinds of things. And the heart of man, we know, is deceitful above everything else, right? It's desperately sick. And this is where the idol is coming from. It's coming out of the heart of men, out of the imaginations of men. And so they take their wood, they take their stone, which are very common elements, but they overlay it with gold. And this gives it glory, it gives it luster, it gives it beauty in the eyes of men so that when they look at it, they don't see underneath the reality. The, the reality is, this is a block of wood, right? I might be uh, jacking my trailer up on the other part of this uh, at the house or burning it in my fireplace. And then it's brother I'm worshiping, but it's okay because I covered it with gold and look how beautiful it is. Therefore, it must be very honorable and it must have great power because it's so shiny and pretty. This is the way it works. They look at those things and then they can't see past it. They can't see the actual reality. It's only a stone. It's only a block of wood. But the reality of the idol is seen in that it has no breath. There's no breath at all inside of it. It can't speak. And this is because it is a dead, mute idol. In contrast, the Lord is described in verse 20. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. God is in His holy temple. The Lord does not live in temples, in temples made by human hands, as if He needed anything from man. Because he's the one that gives to all mankind life, breath, and all things. It says in Acts chapter 17, 24 and 25. And instead of God being speechless, in the relationship between the true God and his worshipers, who are the ones that are speechless? We are. Let the whole earth be silent before him. We're silent before God because what is God doing that the idol cannot do? 
He's speaking. He's revealing His will to us. He's revealing to us who He is, who we are, our sin, the judgment that's coming because of those things, how we can be reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ, and how to live a life that is pleasing to Him. We come to God in order for God to teach us. We are silent before Him. He is not silent before us. And this is the difference between the true God and the false gods. They worship their false gods, but the true God is the one who speaks. And He is the one who can act and who can save His people. So where should we put our trust? Only in the Lord, right? Only in the Lord, only in the Lord. And He has revealed Himself to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. That is where our hope should be found. And all of our love and devotion should be given to Him, right? Not to the things of this world, right? And that is the great danger that we always face, right? Because there are many things that God has given that in their proper place are good and fine, yet because the human heart is a factory-producing idols, we can take any good gift of God and make it into an idol that we begin to worship and serve. And we have to keep a check on those things and make sure that our heart is wholly and solely devoted to the Lord and not to the gifts that God gives. The giver, not the gifts. So, there you go. Habakkuk chapter 2. The Babylonians, yes, they will have their time, but their time will come to an end, as will all of those who worship idols. So let us then worship the true and the living God and not determine God's acceptance and approval of us based upon our circumstances, but always and only based upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, living by faith and not by sight.